This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to Christianese. My name is Drew Fitzgerald, and I want to start by doing something that I really don't do enough. I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all of the really nice ratings and reviews that you leave for this podcast. When you make something for the internet, you really don't know what you're going to get back. You just create something and send it out into the void. So for me to have a podcast that people are enjoying, that they're leaving nice ratings and reviews for, to see that this podcast, which we really haven't marketed for, is growing, not just in the United States, but across the world, it's incredibly humbling. The goal of Christianese is to help Christians think more deeply about their faith so that they might engage more deeply with Christ and impact their communities in a deeper way. And it's been amazing to hear through your comments, your reviews, your ratings, how this little podcast is helping deepen your faith and impact your community to the glory of God. If you haven't left a review or rating already, I'd love to hear from you. But if not, that's okay too. I'm just grateful that you're listening, thinking more deeply about your faith, and putting that faith into action. So again, thank you. Now, let's get on to today's episode. This episode of Christianese is coming out right before an election. I know most of you are probably going to listen to it on the day of or after the election. So this episode isn't specifically about this presidential election. It's really not even about political parties or voting. But when you understand the kingdom of God and your place in it, it can't help but affect the way that you vote, the way that you view elections and the results, and the way that you engage with your political party. It affects a lot of other stuff too, but we'll get to that later. Welcome to Christianese. You've probably heard Christians talk about having a kingdom mindset, doing something for the kingdom, singing kingdom music, or even referring to Jesus as the king. Now that may feel a little bit foreign, especially if you're an American, because here in the United States, we fought to remove the oppressive boot of kings. We believe that all people are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these rights extend from sea to shining sea. <clears throat> Sorry, caught me getting a little patriotic. Where was I? Right, the kingdom. Even though the idea of a kingdom may be really foreign to a lot of us, it is ever-present throughout Scripture. And as a result, we talk about the kingdom a lot in church. And there's a lot of different ways that we could define the way that we use kingdom in church. In general, though, when we talk about the kingdom, we're thinking about heaven. We're thinking about what it will be like when we are united with God after death. Now, that perspective is good. We absolutely do need to have a bigger picture than just the here and now. 
But if we're only thinking about what happens after death, we're not really understanding the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is not just something that happens later. The kingdom of God is something that you are caught up in, whether you trust Jesus or not, at this very moment. On top of that, if you want to understand Jesus and his mission, it is essential that you understand what the kingdom of God is and what your role in that kingdom is. This is no small topic. This isn't just weird monarchy language that's a relic from Christian history. The kingdom of God is kind of like the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. So, what is the kingdom? Instead of just defining the kingdom in theological terms, let's take a look at the story of the kingdom. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, trace the kingdom throughout the Old Testament into the life and ministry of Jesus, and then into eternity. Because once you understand the story of God's kingdom, understanding your place within it becomes a lot easier. In the beginning, when God created everything, he looked at humanity and decided to embody his rulership through them. In Genesis 1.26, he says, Let us give them dominion over all the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all of the creatures on the earth. You can even see this in Psalm 8, when the psalmist says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little bit lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. In the beginning, God was the creator and the ruler. Humanity embodied and enacted his rule within creation. And as a result, creation flourished. But if you've read your Bible, you know that this did not last long. Humanity was not content with their place in God's dominion, and instead of listening to him to control creation, listened to creation in order to control their own destiny. And this desire to seek their own destiny and dominion starts small, but with disastrous effects. Not long after Genesis 3, we see Cain kill his brother Abel over, of all things, a dispute about worship. Cain goes on to have a son named Enoch, and he builds a city in honor of his son. And eventually, one of his descendants, a man named Lamech, turns this city into a kingdom. In Genesis 4.23, he sings a song bragging about how many wives he has and how violent he is. In the span of just one chapter of the Bible, humanity ceases to embody God's rule over creation then builds a kingdom typified by lust, dominance, and violence. In Genesis chapter 10, the people of the earth come together to make one collective push to build their dominion. Led by a man named Nimrod, whose name in Hebrew sounds like the word for rebel, decide to build a tower that will elevate them to the status they lost in the Garden of Eden. God looks down on their rebellion confuses their language so that they can no longer work together and scatters them across the earth. The story of the Bible starts with a tragedy of kingdom lost, humanity leaving God's kingdom and his plan and trying to build their own dominion.
But, as I'm sure you are well aware, that's not the end of the story. Not five chapters later, God calls a man named Abram and starts to build a people or a nation of his own. Now this nation, the nation of Israel, was not meant to compete with the other nations of the earth. God was very clear, especially in Exodus 19 verse 6, that his nation was meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That his people were meant to go out to those busy building their own kingdoms and to redeem them and bring them back to the kingdom of God. But if you've read your Old Testament or listened to my earlier podcast on the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel really struggled with this calling. For example, Israel wasn't supposed to have a king. God was their king. But by 1 Samuel, the people of God demanded that they have a king so that they could be more like the nations around them. And so God gives his people a king. And he tells that king how he's supposed to act. He's not supposed to amass an army, collect horses from Egypt, or collect wives. He's not meant to hoard wealth. And he must write out his own personal copy of the law by hand. The way that God wants his kings to behave doesn't look at all like other kings of the world that do amass armies, that do have harems and incredible wealth and lots of horses. God's king is supposed to look much more like a priest. And while we do get glimpses of that kind of king in the life of King David, it doesn't take long until the kings of Israel start to look much more like the kings and the nations surrounding them. And instead of leading God's kingdom to his throne, they lead God's people into civil war. And during this civil war, God's people completely forget about his kingdom. Like Adam, Cain, Lamech, and the people of Babel, God's nation abandons him and his kingdom and seeks to build their own nations, built on greed, power, oppression, lust, and violence. And so God judges Israel. Foreign nations come in and conquer Israel, taking her people into exile. And if you're reading this story, it looks like the kingdom's done. There is no more throne. There is no more Jerusalem. There's no more temple, no more nation, no more people. But God isn't finished. In Isaiah 52, we read a poem where a watchman is standing on the walls of ruined Jerusalem and he sees a messenger running across the mountains. He says, How delightful it is to see approaching over the mountains the feet of a messenger who announces peace, a messenger who brings good news, who announces deliverance, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. This messenger shows up with good news, or what the Greeks would call euangelion. It's the word that we translate gospel. And the messenger says, God is still on the throne. Your king still reigns. And that one day, God himself will return to Jerusalem and establish his throne forever. So how on earth do you live for the kingdom when the earthly kingdom doesn't exist anymore? As the last group of God's people are being taken into exile, 
God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah and says, To all those sent into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters, grow in number, do not dwindle away. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. It seems like a big question wondering, how on earth do people of the kingdom of God live in the kingdom of man? But God's answer is pretty straightforward. You make it your home. And during exile, we see people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all working for foreign kings. But when a king like Nebuchadnezzar, one who poses himself as God and says, My throne is an eternal throne, asks Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to bend their knee and worship him, they all say no. And all four of those men, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flaming furnace, would rather have died than cease to worship God. Because they knew even though they weren't in a physical kingdom of Israel, that they were still citizens in the kingdom of God, and that he was still on the throne, ruling and reigning. After a few decades, the Persian Empire invades Babylon and decides to send God's people back to Israel. Jerusalem is repopulated, the temple is rebuilt, and God's people are reestablished in the land. And you'd think that this is when God himself would return to Jerusalem, just like Isaiah said, when he would establish his throne forever. But instead, we get 400 years of silence. 400 years of patiently waiting. Of nothing. In the garden, man chose not to embody God's rule and reign in creation. In the nation of Israel, rejected God's plan for them as a kingdom of priests in favor of looking more like the nations that surrounded them. In exile, the kingdom was hidden. And now that the nation had returned, the kingdom didn't seem like it was showing up. God's people were under the oppressive rule of Rome and they wanted a king to come and save them. They wanted to see the kingdom established on earth. But God wasn't after just establishing another kingdom of man to compete with everyone else. God, the king, sent his son to establish his throne forever and to once and for all deal with the problem of humanity, our sin, that always caused us to look away from God and his kingdom towards our own dominion. And in the Gospels, we don't see an earthly king riding in on a great white steed with a sword and an army. We see Jesus, the priest king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a king whose coronation was a cross, complete with a crown of thorns, who didn't revel in strength but the lowly, who did not destroy his enemies but forgave them and told his followers to pray for them, and in his kingdom, the blessed aren't the oppressors and the strong, but the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. Where sin turned the created order upside down, Jesus turned our earthly view of a kingdom upside down, reorienting his people into God's kingdom.
And before he ascends into heaven, Jesus tells his followers, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I am sending you to go and make disciples of all nations, to preach that there is forgiveness and repenting of sins, that there is hope in Jesus. Now think about this commission. The Great Commission is not unlike the charge God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to embody God's rule and reign in the garden and throughout the earth. The Great Commission tells followers of Jesus to spread His image throughout the world, to embody His rule and reign in all nations of the earth. The kingdom of God is not competing with other nations, it's above all other nations. And that kingdom can seed or multiply in any place and any time. If we only think that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is something that comes after death, we're missing the point. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, the kingdom of God does have a heavenly aspect. At the end of Revelation, we see all of God's people gathered together, not in a garden, but a redeemed city, where Jesus himself is sitting on the throne. We do look forward to that, and that is our hope. But our mission here and now is to make the kingdom of God visible in the nations of man. Like Israel, the church is called a kingdom of priests. And like the Hebrew nation while in exile, the New Testament calls us strangers, ambassadors in a foreign land. Like the exiles, you're meant to make your nation your home, to pray for it, to work so that it prospers. For as your nation prospers, so also will you. And much of the New Testament, Romans 12-16 through 16, for example, gives us really practical principles for how to do that. You can think of your New Testament as your kingdom handbook. But instead of diving into those chapters, Let's get out of the purely theological and talk about the practical implications of the kingdom. Is the United States the new nation of God? It's not a crazy thought, especially for evangelical Christians, particularly in older generations. Oftentimes they see the United States, or at least their own political aspirations for the United States, as the hope of the world. Yes, we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but the United States is not the new Israel. Citizenship in any earthly nation does not equate to citizenship in the kingdom of God. Jesus said very clearly his kingdom was not of this earth. But so many Christians have become tied to political power-seeking that we won't even hold our own leaders accountable to their words and actions, even when those actions stand in stark contrast to our morality and kingdom ethic. And today, we find ourselves at a point where our politics doesn't have a moral compass, and we clap and cheer when our elected official replace our king with our country's flag. So let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on oh glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. I'm not saying that you have to be a member of a particular party. We just can't bow down to those parties. Because this country that I love and I participate in, it doesn't look like the kingdom of God. You'd have to plug your ears and close your eyes to think that we've only done righteousness in our past. 
You'd have to crawl into a cave to think that we only do righteousness in our present. The truth is, when you read the Bible and look at the kingdom of God compared to the kingdom of men, and you look at American history, the United States has looked much more like Rome, like Persia, like Babylon, like Babel, and the city of Lamech, than it does Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And if you think that sounds unpatriotic, you're kind of proving my point. Think about the way that the church is described in the New Testament. Foreigners, strangers, exiles, ambassadors. Look at the way that God encouraged his people to live while they were in exile, to make foreign nations their home, to seek the good of those places. Think of the Great Commission, where Jesus sends us into the nations of the world to make disciples and make his kingdom known. And if we can admit that our countries are not as they should be, then we can finally recognize the opportunities where we can get engaged civically, politically, relationally, and actually do the work that God calls us to. The New Testament is for you. The Great Commission is your mission. You are like Isaiah's messenger, running across the hilltops into nations saying, peace, Good news, the king is on his throne. As citizens of God's kingdom, we're not always going to be the powerful. We're the meek, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemakers, people enacting justice and upholding moral order, those who pray for their neighbors and their country and seek the flourishing of their city people who pray for their elected officials but never bow down to them, people that God calls his sons and his daughters, who don't source their identity in their nation, but find all of their identity, their purpose, and hope in the kingdom of God. We're the people of assured hope, who see our king on the heavenly, eternal throne and know that one day he will destroy all sin and death and make all things new. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's go build the kingdom. This has been a production of Fathom Magazine. To find out more and read amazing articles, go to fathommag.com. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?